We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, yes, the dignity of humanity. And that voice, that last voice, yeah, he he was involved in uh, a war, too. Another day, another war. LBJ's Vietnam held the title of America's longest war until... We went into Afghanistan in 2001, where we've been ever since, making apparently no progress whatsoever. And progress toward what? What is the goal? What would victory look like? Of course, since then, we've had a sizable war in Iraq. And aside from removing Saddam Hussein, we accomplished uh, what there? Uh, Under President Obama, Hillary Clinton unleashed a war in Libya, which has caused it to become a total failed state in absolute chaos and where it remains. It is now a safe place for ISIS. Thank you very much. There are little wars in Somalia. We're providing virtually all the bombs and weapons which are now decimating the people of Yemen, resulting in famine and cholera there. And of course, our client state, the Saudis, are not winning in Yemen. And what of that much-vaunted war on ISIS? No question, they're evil, bloodthirsty killers. But what is the reality on the ground of that war, which bleeds over borders throughout the Middle East? And recently, Trump sent a bunch of missiles into Syria, those tomahawks. Then our fighter jets got into a bit of a scuffle with Russia in early June. Uh, An American F-18 shot down a Syrian warplane near the Syria-Turkish border first air-to-air shootdown in almost 20 years. Since then, Russia's Syria's ally now says it will treat U.S. or coalition jets as targets. And more recently, at very close range, Russia buzzed an American jet in the area. And on June 26th, President Trump, without telling any of the uh, appropriate uh, agencies, uh, blustered again, did a a lot more saber-rattling against Syria. It is intense. Our guest today, Jim Cavanaugh, argues that the U.S. is at war with Syria, and he's urging resistance. Cavanaugh is a former college professor. His articles have appeared in Counterpunch, good paper, the Greenville Post, the UNS Review, and Z, and other sites around the net. He blogs at his website, thepolemicist.net. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Jim. Thank you, Bert. Well, from what I understand... The warplane that the U.S. shot down had just bombed Syrian rebels. It seems, and this was, you know, the the 
government of Syria play? And it seems that the Syrian dictator Assad made war on many of his own Syrian people who at first peacefully protested his brutal regime. He has allegedly dropped sarin gas on civilians. Does the U.S. and our coalition not have a right and perhaps a responsibility to protect the people being bombed by their own government? Well, uh, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> but let me give you the longer version of the answer. Uh, I think it's certainly clear that uh, when one asks a question like that, does the U.S. and our coalition, our coalition, have a right, right. and a responsibility? Uh, you'd have to understand that that question would have to be posed for every situation in the world where a government is oppressing its own people in some way. And what other coalitions and countries have the right to protect the people from their own government? Do the Chinese have a right to have a coalition and come to the United States and protect the black people from being shot by the police? (laughs) That's why there was established after World War II a set of institutions and international institutions and protocols that prevent that from happening. Aggression always comes in the form of we're here to save you. We're here to save somebody. Right. So you know, the Germans were saving the German populations of the Sudetenland. Right. So it's not that I, I want to dismiss the question, the, 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 question the, the, the concerns that the question addresses, but the short answer is no. The United States and the people it chooses to be its coalition don't have the right to go around the world and say, oh, this government is oppressing its own people, and we have the right and we have the responsibility to go in there with our military and solve that problem, that's especially when they're not solving the problem, and that's never really the reason they're going in. Yeah, inter- interesting point, humanitarian intervention. Uh-huh, yeah, that's a new, uh, a new phrase yeah. that's been used by uh, former Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton, who has made some significant yes, wars. humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect. And you're right. I mean, These are, in my view, new versions of missionary imperialism. Mission- We're coming to save you uh-huh. from... And there are, real, there are real, obviously, dangers in the world, and there are real threats. Sure. But it's extremely unlikely that the United States knows how to solve the problems <laughs> of all these countries. And it's frankly in no position given its own history and the reality of its own social economy and its own po- uh, political uh, structure today to abrogate to itself the right and the authority to go around solving other people's problems by military force. Boy, it's true. It, you know, that's it, as you describe. It also happens to be standard international law. <laughs> so, you know, people like Francis Boyle and. No, uh, if you don't know of him, uh, an yeah, uh, international law scholar, Richard Falk, yes. a friend of mine, you, know, the, the, you, you, you either are going to uh, abide by the established protocols of international law, which means operating through institutions like the United Nations and international uh-huh. institutions, or it becomes the strongest power, because it's always going to be the strongest power that has that authority and has that right. Yeah. Uh, you know, China could come to the end, sure. could maybe they, uh, gin up a coalition and decide it wants to solve the problems of Vietnam, but Ghana isn't going to 
intervene isn't going to solve anybody's problems because they're not a powerful country. It's always going to be the powerful who are in the position of saying, oh, we have the right and the authority to go in and solve everybody else's problems. Missionary imperialism. I hadn't heard that before, but boy, that does fit the bill. And you're right. I mean, back in the 50s, the Soviet Union would uh, do a lot of propaganda about how bad uh, the United States' racist uh, policy was. They Did they have the right? Would they have had the right to come in here and, and save them militarily? Interesting point. And you know, President Trump has gone way off precedent on a great many areas. But as you point out in your article, this war on Syria is not one of them. I remember President Obama coming very close to bombing Syria until there was a huge public outcry against it. So what was, what was President Obama's military policy in Syria, and how, how, how different is Trump's, or how consistent is Trump's with Obama's on Syria? Well, this is an important point, and, you know, my, my, my article last week on, the United, on, on Counterpunch, that the United States is at war with Syria, actually reprised some of the things I said in an article in 2015 about the United States being at war in Syria. Because in August of 2000, well, well the United States had been supporting excuse me, and really directing the, uh, the insurgency in Syria since 2012. Yes. Other people had been the main suppliers of weapons, but the United States was clearly the director of that. Uh, and, and the Syrians, and I've written a number of pieces about this on my blog, uh, you know, the Syrians have acknowledge that. The Syrian rebels themselves acknowledge that. Mm. But the United States, Obama was reluctant to get too heavily involved directly. Then, and people didn't notice this, but in August of 2015, the administration announced that the, and I'll read it, the United States has decided to allow airstrikes to defend Syrian rebels trained by the U.S. military from any attackers, even if the enemies hail from forces loyal to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. So that was an official statement in August of 2015 that the United States said, we are now going to fight on behalf of the rebels, and we will attack Syrian forces in order to protect them. Okay? And that was what I consider uh, the, the, uh, the spur that got Assad to say to the Russians, you have to come and help, and the Russians said, okay, we will. Mm-hmm. And I think at that, at that moment, uh, it's when the United States said that. When a country says about another country, we are going to attack the armed forces of that country, country and protect our rebels, that's essentially a declaration of war. Now, the Russians stepped in and confounded the problem, okay? Yeah. But clearly now, with Trump, after the attack in April with the Tomahawk missiles, yes. and... Uh, after the shootdown of the Syrian plane, they're moving further in this direction. And they're extending and, 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 and making real the threats that Obama originally made. Uh-huh. And because the Russians, have put, the Russians and the Syrians have put them in a bind here, the Syrian army has been very successful and is retaking territory from oh, ISIS. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the Americans don't want that to happen. They don't want Syria to retake its own territory. So they're starting again to, to uh, attack Syrian forces, although they did it before. They did it in Deir al-Azor last, 
last year, in 2016, where they enabled ISIS to take over that town by attacking Syrian forces. They said it was a mistake. They stopped. But uh-huh. I think we're going to have, a, you know, a more and more of these things that are like one-off mistakes, but they're not that- one-off mistakes. They're testing the limits of Syrian armed forces and Russian, and Russian reaction. And what you're saying certainly challenges conventional wisdom. And, you know, I'm old enough to know that, guess what, folks? Conventional wisdom is often not just incorrect, but it's often totally false. I mean, just absolutely false. And to challenge that is seen as, oh, my goodness, how can you say we, uh, you know, don't want Syria to beat ISIS? That's like, how, how could anybody say that? But as, as you're describing, it seems to be the case. Now, what about this? Who, who were these uh, uh, Free Syrian Army, our rebels? Tell us, please, what is known about the actual forces fighting against Assad. What is their base of support? And what do we know about the reality on the ground and their possible relations with uh, ISIS? Well, there are so many groups on the ground in, in Syria that it's hard to, to describe them all. And I do not claim to know everything about all of the groups. The Free Syrian Army was the name of the force that, from like 2012 to 2015-16, was supposedly the American-led force. But that's kind of gone by the wayside, okay? And the main fighting forces in Syria for the past two years certainly have been Al-Qaeda al-Nusra, excuse me, Al-Qaeda al-Nusra, which is which has now changed its name a number of times, but it's essentially the Syrian version of Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, which is kind of post-Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, that right. uh, was formed initially in Iraq and then moved to Syria. And they are the most vicious sectarian, jihadi groups, and the United St- they're on everybody's list of terrorist groups that have no legitimacy, but the United States supports other groups, gives other groups uh, funding and weapons, and those weapons always end up in the hands of of al-Nusra and ISIS. And the United States knows that. And it was shown in 2012 by, in fact, Michael Michael Flynn, when he was director of, uh, uh, I forget the exact title at the time, but there was a report saying the United States policy was to help set up a Sunni caliphate. In, they knew this was going on, and they were Sunni caliphate in parts of Syria. And both John Kerry and, and Barack Obama said, we saw ISIS coming, we saw what ISIS was doing, and we didn't want to attack them. Obama said in Iraq, we didn't want to attack ISIS in Iraq because we wanted them to keep up the pressure on, on Maliki. And Kerry said in, a, in that famous interview that was... Uh, not interview, but the the meeting that he had with the Syrian his Syrian rebel guys mm-hmm. that was taped and broadcast last year or six months ago or so. We knew we saw ISIS coming, and we thought, okay, they're they're the ones who could put real pressure on us. They thought they could manage it. What you have are a series mm. of foreign powers like the United States, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf countries, but mainly Saudi Arabia, Israel, who think they can manage the worst of the jihadi elements. They, could, they think they can put in their own versions of it, of, of, of these 
jihadi rebels who who they can control and keep kind of sort of enough separate from the from the worst of the worst and at the end of the day if Assad is overthrown or whatever they will be able to manage the outcome this is dangerous foolish it never works <laughs> as as rocky famously said to bullwinkle that trick never works you know it just it's it's amazing how often we do it and i'm thinking back to uh, the First World War, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which is this area now, and the British and French involvement, thinking they could manage their rebels. And exactly. what one thinks back to Afghanistan, when the Russians were deeply involved there, uh, and, and we, uh, w- with the right-wing support, uh, supported what became al-Qaeda, because we thought we could manage those rebels. Boy, that's right. It just, that's right. Um, I mean, we were, and, you know, one has to look at that dispassionately now and see, see what happened. That began under the Carter administration. That began with right. Brzezinski, that's right. That's right. who acknowledged that they started the guerrilla conflict, the, the jihadi uh, action against the Afghanistan in, uh, Af- Afghanistan government, right. which was a very, very secular government at the time. You watch the pictures yeah. of Afghanistan in the seventies. The girls walking around in miniskirts. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and but when when a uh, when a government came in that opposed the mo- that deposed the monarchy and was friendly to the Soviet Union, which every government in Afghanistan had been friendly to the Soviet Union. But the real problem was it was deposing a monarchy, and it was threatening to, to, to construct a society on another basis. And uh, the United States decided what they would do would be to, to, to arm and train jihadi forces, including what were called the Afghan Arabs, people brought from the Arabian Peninsula and Saudi Arabia and the Middle East to Afghanistan to fight that secular government in order to provoke a Soviet invasion, which the Afghan government asked the Soviet Union for help, and the Soviet Union came and helped. And then it was a Soviet invasion. But again, the legitimate government of Afghanistan asking for help for another legitimate government for a, a, a conflict that had been generated from the outside uh, in, order to, in, in order to be to, to make Afghanistan a point at which to strike at the Soviet Union, to weaken the Soviet Union to get them involved in a quagmire. And then, of course, the Americans and the Saudis poured money, and the Pakistanis poured money into that, and poured arms into that, and uh, the Soviets, at the the end of the day, couldn't match it. One has to understand, you talk about Islam. If 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 the Westboro Baptist Church started to receive money, arms, and support from the most powerful people in the world, the most powerful countries in the world, the richest countries in the world, they would suddenly, and they sent out their guerrillas to fight against American secularism and gay rights, and suddenly the Westboro Baptist Church would be the face of militant Islam in the world. That's what the United States and its allies have done in the Islamic world. They've picked the most retrograde, retrograde elements and, and use them, arm them, and turn them in to globally significant armies that they think they can manage. Unbelievable. But against it's secularism tr- and democracy, really. 
against secularism and democracy. Hey, what better side to be on? After all, we are missionary imperialists at work here. If you just tuned in, Keeping Democracy Alive is the name of the show. I'm Bert Cohen. Our guest today is Jim Cavanaugh, who's written uh, an article, The U.S. is at War with Syria and We Need to Resist, and this appeared on the uh, Counterpunch, which is a great, great uh, source of news. Uh, Counterpunch, uh, the title is great. And, And what about, I mean, the founders of this country specifically created uh, they, they didn't. They were against an imperial presidency. They didn't want an executive to all to have all the power. They specifically said that Congress must declare war. Little did they imagine that somebody could do a war without a declaration of war. What about the War Powers Act? If my memory is correct, and sometimes it is, it was created in 1970 as a way for Congress to assert its constitutional responsibility when President Nixon launched his illegal war against Cambodia. And it did stop that war. You say that Obama, in the article, was warned by his attorney general and other legal advisors that he'd be violating the War Powers Act by making war in Libya. Now, could the president plausibly deny that that was indeed a war which fell under the provisions of the War Powers Act? And, and where does that all stand now? Are they just ignoring it? Yeah, well, you know, it, it is amazing that, and what you see is that it's one thing to write a law, to have a constitution. It can be crystal clear. <laughs> uh, but you've got to have the political ability to keep people honest on that in practice. And you have to have political movements that are capable of doing that. It wasn't the War Powers Act that stopped the Vietnam War. It was the movement of the, the anti-war movement in the street Absolutely. that got a War Powers Act and stopped the Vietnam War. And it's the lack of an anti-war movement that means nobody's going to pay attention to the War Powers Act or the Constitution. Good Obama, point. in his... And, and by the time... And what you have is this... It, it's just kind of frustrating and, and depressing to see how you have these cycles... It was a strong anti-war feeling, anti-war movement in the United States, certainly in the 60s and 70s against the Vietnam War. Absolutely. And that caused the Vietnam Syndrome. And they do whatever they can. For, they'll, they'll work on it for 10 years to get it, get it over with, to, to get over that syndrome. And then we had the attack on Iraq that everybody was behind. The whole country was behind. Nobody right. could speak against it. Right. Bill Dunahee was kicked off the air because he dead anybody who said anything. But then after a few years, everybody saw what a nightmare it was, and suddenly everybody was anti-war again. Right. And by the time, and Obama became the presidential nominee because he gave given one anti-war speech. And he said when he was, I'm, I'm going to read it again, when he was candidate in 2007, the president does not have the power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation. This wow. is the kind of rhetoric Obama was using in his, in his uh, campaign that got so many people excited. Yeah. And that he was promising to be not George Bush, you know, not a guy who's going to go attacking all around the world. And then you have, and the Libyan situation is a, is a, is a classic example of it, you know, we just want to get rid of this guy. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, oh, the, the, we don't have real boots on the ground, so it's right. not really a hostilities. That's literally what they said. We can claim it's not a war because there are no boots on the ground, which was, first of all, a lie. There were boots on the ground, but they were special forces groups 
boots, so they weren't real kind of divisions of the army, so you could put, say there were no American boots on the ground. But secondly, you're bombing thousands and thousands of sorties of bombs, destroying a country, attacking the military forces of the country, and supporting and arming the jihadi rebel forces from all around the world. That's a war <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. And in that particular context, and that was a very important moment because it was the last time that the United Nations, that the United States got a vote in the United Nations, but they mischaracterized and misused that vote. They got Russia, I think China might have abstained, but they got Russia to go along with a resolution that was a resolution to diminish hostilities. Not a resolution to attack Libya. It was a resolution to diminish hostilities, to, 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 to stop arming uh, the Gaddafi side, etc. And the United States used that as, a, as an excuse, but did nothing in the United States. They used that as an excuse to attack the United States, which was in violation of the, of the resolution, actually. And in, in that point, because it's Obama now who's the president, the, the Republicans were saying, what are right. you doing? We have a War Powers Act. You can't just act unilaterally. Right. And there was somewhat of a debate, but at the end of the day, the mainstream Republicans and the party or Democratic Party is not going to resist an American president who's making a war. They're just not going to do it. <sighs> so not. they ended up destroying the country, and they did destroy the country. The country is yeah. destroyed. It's a total, total mess right now. And to give credit where it's due, this was largely Hillary Clinton's doing. She, the president said that he was uh, only 51% convinced that he ought to do that. But it happened, and it's a total disaster now, and it's a fantastic... Yes, like, it seems like it was a, a, a pet project of Hillary and Samantha Power and yep. uh, uh, anyway, Obama to, to push forward with it. We're, we're talking about the, the latest Syria action and, you know, brushing into war. I mean, like, it seems like people are, in the administration are just itching for war with Syria. And we've gotten used to just blatant falsehoods. The New York Times actually put out a list of hundreds of, of absolute lies that have come out of Trump's mouth. We've gotten used to them uh, coming out regularly from Trump. It's been normalized, these absolute falsehoods. Did Obama norm, normalize the concept of executive war-making prerogatives, as, as you describe? He, he, I, well, I think it was normalized before Obama. That's true. <laughs> there was, you know, uh, there has been no real declaration of wars. But in the case of uh, the 1991 war uh, in Iraq right, right. And, the, and the 2003 war in Iraq, the president went to the Congress and got an authorization for the use of military force. I think that's kind of a, a, a phony way of sidestepping the need for a declaration of war, but yeah. whatever. He, got a, they, he did go and get some congressional, congressional authorization because since Vietnam, it, there's been a resistance to that. People know you don't get, you, we don't want to get involved in this. So and now Obama, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what happened with Obama, which is the unfortunate thing again, is that it's, it, the movement that would have been there and that was there, there are millions of people on the streets in, in 2003 about the Iraq War, that was there, that made those presidents 
we've got to go to Congress, was not there for, for Obama. The, what Obama did was not so much normalize executive power as he normalized the passivity of those people who would have, would have resisted the executive power, if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes a <laughs> lot of sense. He demobilized the anti-war movement. And hmm. everybody sat back, people who knew better and who had resisted it with Nixon and Bush 1 and Bush 2, Democratic senators who voted against uh, the Iraq War in 1991, I think Joe Biden, and ended up being, oh, in 2003, no, we've got to go along with it. But the people in the street, the people who consider themselves liberals and leftists, no, we're not going to go out in the street about this. This is Barack Obama. Right. And well, that gave him uh, a lot more leeway to go along, to push forward. And I think he set the agenda. And, and Mitt Romney said it in, by the time 2012 came, around, came along. That quote I gave you from Obama was in t- the, the, the campaign in 2007, yeah. 2008. By the time the campaign came along in 2012, Mitt Romney, someone asked him, what do you think about the president's ability to make war? He said, well, that's kind of been settled now, hasn't it? Uh, Obama kind of settled that, didn't he? Nobody's going. Nobody has to go anymore to the Congress. So wow. this is this is terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's terrible, and it's very, very dangerous. And it, what he did was he created a precedent that people like Trump are going to use. And the liberals and the leftists sat back and said, "We don't want to resist Trump. Oh, we don't want to resist Obama." But he's, guess who's going to come next and say, "Look at what Obama did. I'm going to do the same thing." It's fascinating that. It seems that there are many different goals of of what's going on with this whole abuse of executive power. One of which I think uh, you know is to to fight Syria and whoever the uh, official enemy is this week, but also to take power away from the people, make people convinced, and and using the uh, A U M F uh, authorized what was that authorizing authorization for use of military force. Right, it takes people give up. And the goal of keeping people from the streets has largely been achieved, and that's really frightening because they, you know, they couldn't. Nixon, you know, was very. Uh, they didn't. They weren't that sophisticated at the time. But now, you know, to keep the people out of the streets, to to keep people feeling powerless, boy, that's a goal they've actually accomplished, and that's really, really scary. Yeah. Keeping people out of the streets and keeping them quiet and yes, just, yes. Uh, the drafters of the U.S. Constitution, as they said, were careful to specifically require that war can only be declared through consent of Congress. I'm trying to remember when the last time that was actually used. Was World it? War yeah, was it really that long? I mean, Truman didn't use it in Korea. They just went no. around it. That's no. Me. There's been no real declaration of war since World War II. It's my understanding. Yeah. And uh, again, as I say, it didn't, Obama didn't start this, that fire, but uh, he, he it came in in a context where there was great resistance to keeping that going, and he dis, disarmed what anti-war movement there was and would have been. Yeah, I was a little surprised. I must say that, that in <coughs> 2003 when it happened, uh, it was really 1984, you know, that, that the media, everybody was on board. You couldn't possibly resist this righteous holy war uh, against Iraq. And, boy, that, that changed a lot of things. 
and not for the better. So now, you know, even uh, uh, so-called liberals, I mean, the Democratic Party uh, is certainly in an identity crisis right now, but it seems like the the establishment of the Democratic Party is 100% behind uh, this war and and pretty much other wars. Uh, and, And you write that the war on ISIS is a sham. That's quite an allegation. I wonder if you could say more about what you mean by that. Well, I just uh, described, and and it's on the record that Kerry and Obama both said, "Oh yeah, we saw ISIS coming, and and we 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 allowed it. We didn't bomb them because we wanted them to go, to to succeed to a to a certain point. So it's like the war on Al Qaeda is a sham. I mean." Al Qaeda is the United States ally in Syria. Okay, they are. They just are. They're the main fighting force of the Syrian rebels. Al Nusra Al Qaeda, their latest uh, change of name. So the United States cannot. These these uh, fights that are going on in the Middle East, the foot soldiers of those are these jihadi rebel groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda, and they're the ones who are being. It's got Turkey, yeah. Saudi Arabia knew what was going on with ISIS. We're supporting them. ISIS wasn't getting their money from nobody. ISIS was having miles long convoys of trucks selling oil into Turkey. Right, absolutely. So that's where the know, money comes. And they, the United States, Turkey's a member of NATO. <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia, and they said it. They said these people say we don't do the thing that the United States doesn't let us do. So it's not the United States knew about it, and gave permission for it. And if there weren't an ISIS, they'd need to invent one. No. Because what they need is something that will be the boogeyman. This is why now, oh, now that it's it, it's terrible thing to attack another country, but look at ISIS. <laughs> we got to go get them. Wow, that is so convenient. It's true. And they are, they are pretty terrible. I mean, the, the videos that we get. But, uh, uh, and who, so who else... I want to try to figure out, I mean, World War I was very complicated. Who's on what side? Now we have this situation. Who's, who, who else is with us in the fight against the Syrian government? Is there, I mean, th- th- there's the Saudis who are big, big players in the region. They're making a terrible war against the people of Yemen. Uh, there's, there's the government of Turkey, whereas they're, it seems that their biggest enemy is the Kurds because they want yes. their own Kurdistan state. Yes. And, and, and people from Kurdistan, especially women, are fighting very effectively against ISIS. So I guess you can't tell the players without a scorecard. So who is, who is, what, what other countries are with us in this fight against the Syrian government? Well, I, I, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia certainly has a, is a big player in this, and they want to get rid of Syrian government. They want to get rid of the last bastion of sec- secular nationalism, and they want to. Uh, uh, they really have a sectarian agenda regarding Sunni fanaticism, their version of Wahhabi Islam, and versus Shiism. Uh, but the other player that is the incredibly big player that's very rarely mentioned is Israel. Yeah. Israel wants Syria broken up. Israel wanted Iraq broken up, and one has to see that there's, there's a level at which, from the point of view of, you know, rational, political 
we want stability and peace in the, in the, in the region and the world. These things are crazy. Iraq is crazy. It, it was a failure. But from another point of view, no, it wasn't. Iraq destroyed. The, the war in Iraq destroyed the country, eliminated a strong, powerful military presence that, had, that supported the Palestinian resistance. Uh, Libya was a country that supported the Palestinian resistance. Syria is another country. The United States, I think most people would, would understand you know, that, that, that the relationship between Israel and the United States is such that the United States wasn't going to do things in Syria, wasn't going to allow ISIS and al-Qaeda groups and support them in Syria without guaranteeing the Israelis that it would be a net benefit to them. And in fact, Israel has said, Israeli officials have said, we'd rather have ISIS in power than, than Assad. Hmm. And really, it's not, and they've supported, they, it's just come out in the Wall Street Journal for years. They've been supporting, supplying, buying weapons, paying the commanders of jihadi groups uh, in, in Syria. They have hospitals where they treat the wounded and send them back into combat. They have agreements with these groups that they can come over the country, come over in the Golan Heights. You know, you can pass through and we'll, we'll, we'll sew you up and send you back. Hmm. They, they, they attack Syrian army positions on behalf of ISIS and al-Qaeda. Uh, and their perspective is, we, we want to break up these states. We right. want to have, and this is not, I'm not just saying this off the top of my head. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, there's, a, there's a plan that was, articulated in the 1980s, Yanon plan, which is, the, our vision is to break up these big states into smaller sectarian states, because it's part of what legitimizes us. Oh, now we are the only democracy, we're the only, all mm-hmm. these countries around us are crazy, look at this. And again, they think they can manage that. You think this is crazy, most people, because nobody, very few people talk about this. Israelis would never support ISIS, they would never support Al-Qaeda, they would never support, but they do, because they think they can manage it, and they think it's less of a danger to them than a united Syria in a strong partnership with Iran, and their real threat to them is Hezbollah and the groups like Hezbollah, which is a, which is a very competent fighting group, which has fought off the Israelis, and Israel, Israel wants to get rid of them. And in order to get rid of them, they've got to get rid of Syria as a coherent state with a strong national army, and they've got to get rid of Iran. And this is, what's, this is a huge part of what's behind all of this. And... You, you know, you very rarely see it discussed yeah. in the media, yeah. but it is. there's nothing more determining of American policy in the Middle East than what Israel wants. No, Israel that's true. Why even want things that are stupid, then they're, you know, it will end up going to be stupid for itself, but, you know... They, they have... I mean, the, the, the Israeli lobby in Washington is certainly... I can't think of any possibly more powerful lobby... It's like they are the 51st state, and they have tremendous power over our Congress. Uh, it's, it's really uh, it's troubling, and I hadn't thought about that. But as you say, they, the Iraq war was kind of good for them, and a war with Syria is kind of good for them. They want to break it up into smaller states. That's a very interesting point, because I've been thinking, wh- what's going on here? Who gains from all this? That's exactly right. Really read some of the other posts that I have on my website about this where I go into that particular aspect of it in more detail. Oof. When you look at this, you say, this is crazy. Who, who wants this? Yeah. Who wants this? And there's an answer to that question. The Israelis want it. And the Saudis want it. Yeah. But most American, most American liberals will say, oh, 
yeah, the Saudis, I can understand. They'll talk about that. Oh, I see why the Saudis want it, because they want to get rid of secular nationalism, and they're, they, they want to get rid of uh, anything that's Republican, and they want to get, they, they want, they're, they're sectarian. Right. But, no, they don't want to go in their minds to, why do the Israelis want it? <laughs> because they just want to break these states up. They want them to be failed states. Wow. <laughs> and, that's, and, 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 and they do want it, and people said that about Iraq. It was said by Thomas Friedman by sure. the, in the Daily Forward. Hey, this is being this war is being promoted by you know twenty Jewish in, in, uh, neocon intellectuals, and mm. that was said. And you know, and what you have now, which is this bizarre thing that's 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 in the uh, in the uh, the faction fighting that's going on in the government now is it's hard to see where it is, but there's always an element of the Israeli lobby, as you say, that's pushing for certain things, and they're very powerful, it's and they don't problem. give up. No, and they almost they don't always give get up. their way. It's true, and, and people don't want to stand up against them. Now, what about Iran and Russia? Russia says it's working with the government of Iran to fight ISIS. And, of course, Iran is treated as another boogeyman. I mean, we actually have a pretty good uh, agreement with them that the, the nuclear uh, non-proliferation uh, treaty, I think it is that title, I'm not sure, but it's it's good for us, actually. It keeps them from building a nuclear bomb. If we were truly focused on crushing ISIS, wouldn't we be working with Russia and Iran on this? What's the story there with Iran and, and Russia in this whole situation? Exactly. Iran and Russia are, and, and now what's happening is Iran, Russia, the, the Syria with the aid of Iran and Russia is defeating ISIS. And it's putting the United States in a very difficult position in Syria because, and they're saying it, they're debating it now openly in the press, what are we going to do when ISIS is defeated? How are we going to maintain our presence there? What excuse are we going to use? Because really their target is Iran and breaking up Syria. Uh, but, uh, but Iran is, and Russia, uh, at a certain point, you know, well, Iran clearly has been supportive of Syria and for a long time. They've, yeah. For a long time, Russia have been allies of Syria. And Russia has just came, come to a point after Libya, I think, where they said, we can't go along with this anymore, yeah. you know? And this is a danger to us, and it is. This is Chechnya. This is, you know, the United States does not want Russia to be a strong, coherent power in the world, that, that, that be able to challenge the United States yeah. a, on a regional level, even. Yeah. And uh, been that way for a hundred years, actually, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, so, and then Wolfowitz said that after after the demise of the Soviet Union, we can't allow any country in any region to to rise in such a way that they can even challenge us regionally. So you know, and Russia's a funny story because Russia's a resurgent capitalist country. Oh yeah, thanks to us. Yeah. <laughs> True, I mean, and and. I, it, they they want to play the game now according to the legitimate rules of kind of capitalist interaction. <laughs> Whereas we and the Saudis and the Israelis want other things that really kind of are excessively crazy from yeah. that point of view. Territorial, for sure. If you yeah. just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Boy, it is a heavy lift. Our guest is Jim Kavanaugh. And he's written on Counterpunch, The U.S. Is at War with Syria, He urges Resistance. He's a uh, former college professor. His articles do appear regularly in Counterpunch, the Greenville Post, Z, and other sites around the net. His, he blogs at his website, thepolemicist.net. In practically every war, there's been a false flag operation. 
some pretext for the belligerent to justify an attack in the public eye. So they say, oh, they attacked us, we got to fight them. For example, there was Fort Sumter in 1861 set up by the North as a casus belli to make war on the South. Excuse me, Hitler staged an attack by false Polish troops to justify his invasion of Poland. And of course, there was the Tonkin Gulf incident, which was used to rev up our war in Vietnam, and it didn't happen. Is the U.S. military trying to provoke a response from Syria and or Russia? Wouldn't that be seen as just crazy and incredibly dangerous? Well, I think it's crazy and incredibly dangerous, but I think they are. Look, when you shoot down a Russian, there's Turks shot down a Russian airplane. The Americans just shot down a Syrian airplane, and they got the response with the Russians said, we are now going to target aircraft in this area, and we've We've, we're no longer going to use this deconfliction line. That's very, very dangerous. Uh, Stephen Cohen has said, you know, Stephen Cohen is one of the foremost right. Russia experts. He's a colleague of mine at Princeton. Yeah. And this is the most dangerous time he's ever seen in Russia-American relations. It's, it's almost at the stage of the October missile crisis because there are three fronts in which there's, there's uh, military forces arrayed against each other in the Baltics and the NATO expansion into Eastern Europe and the Baltics, in the Ukraine, and in Syria, where there are combat aircraft flying around. And it's, it's extremely dangerous. And I do think that in terms of the false flag thing, first of all, the provocation, they want the Russians to shoot them. And American, American soldiers and pilots are being used as bait in Syria. No money. They want the Syrians and the Russians to shoot down an American plane. Because then they can come and say, they need something to come to the country with and say, we really need to go to war with Syria. Because in 2013, when they wanted to, over the, that supposed chemical weapons thing, the country was adamantly against it. And that's one of the reasons they didn't. Congressman, Republican congressman said, my mail is running 10,000 to 1 against any, any attack on Syria. And they've spent the time since then creating causes belly, Cause our belly for with Assad and you know, and it's mainly the chemical weapons things. Yes. And I want to say this about this because this is important today, because you know there was the strike in 2013, and then there was the strike and supposedly the, chem, the, chem, the supposed chemical weapons attack in Gouda in 2013, and the one in uh, in April that supposedly justified Trump sending his tomahawks and. The guy who's been great about this is Seymour Hirsch, you know, one of the prime, one of the preeminent American journalists. Definitely, what's he said? He well, he did an analysis of the the Gouda strike in two thousand after after the, the strike that occurred in two thousand thirteen, and he did it in the London Review of Books because the New Yorker for whom he works would not publish it, and he he, he showed the evidence that the, it wasn't the, Syri- the Syrian government that used chemical weapons in 2013. Now, what's interesting is about two, three days ago, he came out with another article about the April supposed chemical weapons incident, in which he quotes American intelligence saying, we couldn't understand what Trump was doing. We told him there was no chemical weapons there. We, the Russians had, and Syrians had coordinated that strike with us. We knew what was happening. And he went ahead and struck in, in April, because he had seen things on TV right. that he didn't like. Right. And so, so Hirsch published that the other day, published it in a German magazine, Die Welt, because the London Review of Books, which paid for the investigation he did, wouldn't publish it. 
because they didn't want to contradict again American the American narrative about chem- Syrian chemical weapons. Then you have this situation where last night, where 26 June 26, last night as we speak, the uh, Trump announces the White House announces Syria is about to attack with chemical weapons again. Right, and it turns out the. State Department and the Pentagon don't know anything about it. Reporters call the State Department and the Pentagon and say, we don't know anything about this. And this is announcing in advance to the rebels, if you blow up a chemical weapon somewhere, we're going to blame it on the Syrians and attack. I mean, it's mm. not, but anyway. But the other thing is, then the Times writes an article about that. Now, this is, they want to be, New York Times wants to be anti-Trump. Here's Trump making, a, you know, just going bananas. And mm. a few days ago, someone had just published an article showing how he went bananas and in April, the Times does a whole article about this announcement that Trump made, saying this is bizarre because nobody in the government knows about it. Nobody, and they don't mention Seymour, Hans- Seymour Hersh's article, wow. which 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 <clears throat> undermined the story of, of April. Because even in this context, where they're super anti-Trump, they don't want to undermine the narrative about Syria chemical weapons, and they don't want people looking at someone like Seymour Hersh, who publishes outside of their, colors outside of their lives. (laughs) And that's really, the the, the lockup of the media now is so bizarre. Every word of of, of every report from MSNBC to PBS to Fox assumes the fact that Syria has used chemical weapons multiple times against their own people. And those facts have been, that narrative has been challenged and challenged seriously, but they never acknowledge that that's been challenged. And so the, one of the big problems here now is the media is just anything else, anything outside the lines of right. common wisdom, as you say, conventional wisdom, becomes fake news, craziness, you know, nuttiness, tinfoil hats. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And Seymour Hirsch, you know, the word hero is tossed around a lot these days. It seems yes. like anybody in a uniform is called a hero just for putting on a uniform, and yet, as you say, the government is using some of these people as bait, and I can see that. Seymour Hirsch is a hero. He is a true American hero, in my opinion, and and his courage, I mean, it takes courage. That's what hero is, somebody coloring outside the line and going for the actual truth. So we we ought to be paying attention to that. Um, What's Another interesting thing to me is, 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 as you point on, you know, June 26th, uh, d- d- nobody knew about this uh, statement that, that Trump was making that uh, if they cross the line, we're going to attack him. Uh, he's openly yielding. This is different. He's yielding his civilian authority for war making to the military itself. There was a, a rather significant confrontation over something rather similar in the Korean War when General MacArthur wanted to run the war uh, and pay no attention to the civilian president. But Trump, I mean, Truman, rather, asserted his rightful authority. What does this, I mean, Trump has said, I'm giving it all to the, to the military. What does this obvious and, and blatant abrogation of responsibility portend in Syria and elsewhere? I mean, is this well, Trump? It's horrible. Doing this? Obviously, it's horrible just on general principles. I mean, you shouldn't be giving the responsibility to make decisions that have enormous political and geopolitical consequence to your generals. Yeah. And, and he said he would do that. Yeah, he did. But I'm going to say here don't pay too much attention to what he says. Well, that's true. <laughs> because obviously, what happened now, you know, when he comes out with this statement 
on the 26th about the Syrians. We know Syria is going to use chemical weapons, and they called the Defense Department, and the Defense Department says, we know nothing about this. So he obviously then just turned right around and, and preempted his generals. And I think with Trump, one has to understand that, the, the, I mean, uh, Truman and MacArthur, they were principled stances on either side, you know what I mean? With Trump, you don't have things like that. He does things in an extremely impetuous way. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and today, I'm telling, I'm telling the generals, they can do what they want. Now I'm saying, hey, guess what? We should attack Syria. And I think you, have, you mm. do have, I hope, and there, there certainly was under Bush, resistance in the military to yeah. some craziness. Yes, that's true. Commanders under Bush said, you, don't, you want us to attack Iran, I'm leaving. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't quite know how it, what the breakdown is in the military now, but I think people in the military... In fact, uh, a couple of days ago, also the Pentagon announced, and it was amazing, okay, we've kind of realized that we're not going to get what we want in Syria. The, the, we're now going to let the Syrians defeat the... They make an announcement to that effect. Really? We're, we're, we're going to let the Syrians no defeat, defeat ISIS. So there's got to be some kind of faction fighting going on in the military, too. Oh, interesting. And what are the pressures that are going to end up falling one side or the other? We don't know. But it is extremely unpredictable and dangerous. Extremely. So we don't know what the military is thinking. They're factionalized there. And, and often in many countries, the military is, is factionalized. So I wonder what... You know, where is any, any resistance? You write that, and this is an interesting quote, the upside of these attacks on Syrian forces is that they wipe the lipstick off the pig of the American project in Syria. Why? Say more, and, and why might that end up being a good thing? And where can resistance come from? I mean, the Democratic Party seems to be rather silent. I don't know about Bernie Sanders. He's, you know, the real leader of the Democratic people, I think, of the United States. But, but tell us about that quote about wiping the lipstick off the yeah. pig and how that could be a good thing. Well, uh, it, it's the kind of upside to the bad side. That is, I think, <laughs> you know, the more blatantly imperialistic and the more contradictory and kind of crazy this is, and it's not covered up by Obama's nice rhetoric and... What, what starts to erode is the, is the political support for this, unfortunately, not first, I think, in the United States, but in Europe. Yeah, true. And, 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 and that, you know, people, the NATO allies like Germany and France, Macron came out the other day and said, Syria is not the enemy of France. Assad is not the enemy of France. Good. Uh, so, you know, you've you got populations in Europe that aren't going to, you know, with 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 no none of the Obama rhetoric covering any of this, and none of the, and not just rhetoric, but he's also more careful in a lot of ways, and with uh, with with policy that's it's being made in such an impetuous and arrogant way, you start undermining the political support for this around the world, and eventually in the United States too. Although mm. the last people who are going to come around here are the Democratic Party, yeah. uh, uh, and. Bernie Sanders should be in the forefront of this, and he is not. And he got mm. up in front of that people's summit, and you have a people's summit where you say nothing about war and nothing about military send- spending. Interesting. That's, from a progressive point of view, fraudulent in, the, in, t- in today's world in the United States. And there is this large it's resistance thing, but they're not... Health talk- insurance, excuse me? Yeah, th- this whole large resistance thing that's very popular, but I don't hear anything about war. It's it's not being spoken about. Maybe it will if it if it comes up. But that, I find that rather interesting. And we do have power 
We, we ended the war in yep. Vietnam. We absolutely do have power. And when, when our members of Congress actually do hear from us, they do respond because no matter how much money they may get, they still, still theoretically, yes. need the Look votes. at what's happening with the Republican health care bill. Those demonstrations uh, by the people in wheelchairs, by the people who are affected by the bill, they're very powerful, okay? And those demonstrations on the issue of health care, and I just published something on this today, kind of should be had, not only for the Republican offices, but in Schumer's office and Pelosi's office and Graham's office and all the politicians who are on behalf of single-payer health care, and make that fight. And we should have people in the streets over, the, over war. And we should have people in the streets over, uh, in, in people in congressional's office over this. That's, that's what would make a big difference. It would. I'm afraid people have been cowed. People have been cowed to feel like we don't have power when we actually do. We need to, to recognize that. And who knows, maybe by all this craziness, uh, the, the age of uh, U.S. absolute unquestioned dominance of the world might be uh, coming to a different uh, corner, and uh, things might actually turn out better. Let's just hope not too many lives will be lost in the meantime. That's the, rather the scary thing. And it is indeed scary. Certainly the pilots are being used as bait. Fascinating stuff. Thank you for your research. Jim Kavanaugh, if you want to follow uh, his stuff, Counterpunch and thepolemicist.net. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. All right. Come, your masters of war. You that build the big guns. You that build the death planes. You that build all the bombs You that hide behind walls You that hide behind discs I just want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But build to destroy you play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther When the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie in D.C. A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers all the others to fire Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud You've thrown the worst fear Can ever be hurled 
fair to bring children into their world. Oh, threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't worth the blood that runs in your veins. 